Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. Hey Bainbridge, Office Expats, the co-working space in the pavilion is a shared office for those of us who work remotely. We have fast fiber Wi-Fi and organic coffee. Keep us in mind too as a location for board meetings, depositions, or treat your team at work to an island offsite. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Kraken Podcastville, you found the Bystander Podcast. Today, I have Samantha Power talking about her new book, The Education of an Idealist. This was drawn from Monday, September 16th at Town Hall Seattle. I would like to thank Town Hall Seattle for allowing me to audio record these incredible speakers. I'd also like to thank Office Expats, Great Northern Electric, Full-Time Fantasy Sports, Eagle Harbor Insurance, Blue Canary, and the music for the show by Steve Newton and Ralph Rain. Takes a whole crew to get something like this up, and I appreciate everybody that puts in a piece and helps us provide provocative conversations like this. Enjoy. Samantha Power is a professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Harvard Law School. 
From 2013 to 2017, she served as the 28th U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations, as well as a member of President Obama's cabinet. In this role, Power became the public face of U.S. opposition to Russian aggression in, in Ukraine and Syria, negotiated the toughest sanctions in a generation against North Korea, lobbied to secure the release of political prisoners, helped build new inter international law to cripple ISIL's financial networks, and supported President Obama's actions to end the Ebola crisis. From 2009 to 2013, she served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. She is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, The Unquiet American, Richard Holbrook in the World from 2011, as well as 2008's best-selling Chasing the Flame, One Man's Fight to Save the World about former UN Iraqi mission chief, Sergio Vera de Mello. John Koenig held the position of U.S. Ambassador to Cyprus from 2012 to 2015, where he brokered an agreement to launch the latest round of U.N.-sponsored settlement negotiations. He's previously served as political advisor to the NATO Joint Forces Command in Naples, as Deputy Chief of Mission in Berlin, and as Deputy Permanent Representative to the U.S. Mission to NATO and I lost track of the date in my sentence. Sorry about that. But in 2011, he received the Presidential Distinguished Service Award and currently teaches in the master's program at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Ambassador Power's latest book, The Education of an Idealist, a memoir, is the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in welcoming John Koenig, but first, Samantha Power. It is so great to be here, Seattle, in this amazing newly renovated space and to be part of a homecoming, I guess they're calling it. Um, it's no secret that the cause of internationalism, of U.S. leadership in the world, has been a bit bruised um, and dented, uh, but gatherings like this are such a critically important part of ensuring that we have a, con a constituency an informed constituency, an engaged constituency um, on behalf of the right kind of U.S. leadership. Um, so I'm just so grateful to all of you for coming out uh, on this Monday night. Uh, I'm still in the first week of my so-called book tour, and so I'm, I was just saying I felt like Freddie Mercury in the back, like doing my jumping jacks and everything. <laughs> And people looked at me like I was strange. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I'm going to start, um, just take advantage of the fact that I've uh, written this book and really tried to pour my heart out in this book. Um, so I'm going to read a couple passages. They're both short. Um, the, the book that I've written called The Education of an Idealist um, could be heard as um, somehow you get educated and you get your ideals knocked out of you. Um, that's not my story um, at all. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. I, I definitely um, honed in on uh, sort of different priorities at different stages of my career. But the book, I tried to show where, where I got my ideals, why I believe what I believe, how I've revised my views over time, um, and then how I try to put those ideals to use first as a war correspondent, then as a teacher and an activist, then in Obama's uh, Senate office, then on his presidential campaign, from which I had to take a brief departure, but then came back to. 
Um, and then uh, working at the White House as his human rights advisor, and then of course serving in his cabinet uh, as UN ambassador, um, which I did for, the, for his second term. So that's the, the sort of CV arc uh, of the story, but what I really try to do is open up um, the, the very personal dimensions of a journey like that. Um, and the, the first um, passage I'm going to read you uh, comes from when I was making the transition from human rights advisor and UN advisor behind the scenes to becoming UN ambassador. And of course, as many of you know, in order to make a transition of that nature, you have to get confirmed by the US Senate. And yeah, I don't recommend it. It's really, <laughs> no, not a good idea. And especially not a good idea if you've written more than a million words, if you have more than a million words in print, because uh, first you have to go back and read all that you've written, and then if you compound that with everything you've said, you have to know what you've said in order to know what they're gonna say against you. Um, and I, I knew I was in for a, a, a rough fight. So this is just a passage from when I am subjecting myself to what are called murder boards, where uh, some of you probably listen to Pod Save America. Uh, John Favreau and Tommy Veter were part of my murder board. My husband, Cass Sunstein, played Senator Rand Paul in my murder board. <laughs> And this is a major aside, and we have to get to questions here uh, quickly, but one of my pet peeves, I have many pet peeves uh, for, that started when I was very young, but one of them is that Ireland is, people say I, sometimes Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, kind of drives me crazy because I'm from Ireland originally. But then the other pet peeve I have is that people call me powers. It's okay, I mean, it's probably like an upgrade. Uh, <laughs> But in our murder boards where you're practicing what it's gonna be like to appear before the Senate, my husband playing Senator Rand Paul would preface every question by saying, Miss Powers. <laughs> and every time, because I was so bad in the murder boards, I would say, it's power, Senator, which of course is not what you should do or would do. Uh, if you're actually trying to get confirmed, you don't contradict the Senator. Um, but anyway, I gradually figured out how to um, appear before the Senate, and I did eventually get through the Senate. And there's a chapter called One Shot, because Cass and I played Eminem in the morning of my hearing, like two pathetic professors on a laptop in a hotel room. Um, so the chapter is called One Shot, and this is a short passage from that chapter. I knew in advance of my hearing that my answers to the Senator's questions had to show that I was not taking the outcome of the confirmation process for granted. This meant prefacing most responses with caveats like, if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed, I will. But with Ambassador Rice already in place as National Security Advisor in Washington, I couldn't wait until the Senate had voted before planning how Cass and I would go about uprooting our family and moving to New York. Fortunately, Hillary Shrinell, who worked at the US mission to the UN, took much of that burden off my plate. I'd first met Hillary a decade before when she was a 22-year-old intern at the Kennedy School. I found her so dedicated and sharp that I hired her as my full-time research assistant. In five years of working together, she became a close friend. After she graduated from Harvard Law School in 2010, I introduced her to Susan Rice, who hired her as a policy advisor. 
Now, if I could get confirmed, I would have the chance to work with Hillary again. But in the meantime, I asked her to come to Washington, D.C. to join my confirmation team. I felt it was important to have someone in my inner circle who knew both me and the practical and substantive steps I'd need to take once in the job. Because Hillary was close to my family, she also volunteered to help me think through how I could get everybody moved to New York. I was a bit embarrassed to rely on Hillary for help on household issues, given that she would soon be my senior policy advisor if I was fortunate enough to be confirmed. <laughs> but she insisted on using her vacation time to help me. As she put it, quote, the whole system is geared for the old days when a male ambassador swoops into his new job and the faithful wife trails behind organizing the movers and finding schools for the kids, end quote. Hillary and I both knew that Cass was not going to embrace the role of old school spouse. Over the years, I had learned that when I assigned him domestic tasks, I often regretted it. After I gave birth to our son in 2009, the first year I was in the Obama administration, I asked Cass to write Declan's name and birth date on the official form. A few months later, after I waited several hours at the Washington DC birth registry for Declan's birth certificate, I received one for Pecklin Power Sunstein. <laughs> as soon as I saw the typo, I knocked on the glass window and asked for the spelling to be corrected. But the clerk told me that such an alteration would require a trip to the amendments office. I was beside myself. Ma'am, I said, I, I promise you, I, I did not call my son Pecklin and then change my mind. My husband just has horrible handwriting. The clerk repeated directions to the amendments office and slid the glass window shut. After waiting another hour, I received the corrected birth certificate, which still noted, and notes to this day, that Pecklin Power Sunstein was born April 24th, and then beside his birth name, in inch-high black type, the office had added the stamp, amended, and his new name, Declan Power Sunstein. <laughs> this experience now seems completely trivial, but at the time, it sent me into an exasperated rage at my husband. One job. <laughs> you had one job, I told him, and now, for the rest of his life, Declan will have to explain to people why his parents named him Pecklin. When our daughter, Rian, was born three years later, Cass promised I could count on him. I learn well, he said. Yet, when I returned to the same birth registry to collect our daughter's birth certificate, our daughter named Rian, the certificate read, Artan Power Sunstein. No joke. Her birth certificate, like Declan's, now has an inch-high amended stamp indicating that after a few months of reflection, her parents decided that Rian was preferable to Artan. <laughs> I felt we had no margin for error when it came to settling our family in New York 
and was grateful to be able to rely on Hillary. Okay. Many spouses are laughing extra hard. There's a degree of identification going on here. Okay, that's sort of, I'm, again, there's a lot of family woven into this, just as inevitably. Um, there's a lot of family woven into my life, and, and family is the foundation for everything I've tried to do. Um, there's also, there are a number of tensions embedded in the story, particularly when I go from being a critic to being suddenly in the situation room, in the room where it happens, um, and then when I make my way to New York. So this is just a short scene from just after I've arrived in New York, and I've just attended my first ever Security Council serving as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations. I'd attended others as a reporter and others as a staffer with President Obama, but here I was sitting in the chair for the first time, and uh, the meeting dragged on forever, and nothing was achieved. And when I left, uh, the president of the council, who was then the Argentine president, Kirchner, some of you know, um, her team escorted those of us who had participated to a large UN dining room for lunch. And here's the passage. At the lunch, I found myself seated next to Bruno Rodriguez, the foreign minister of Cuba, a country with which the United States had not had diplomatic relations since 1961. And I should note, this is 2013 when I arrive, so before the normalization uh, was announced and before anybody even knew that the negotiations were happening. So I found myself seated next to Bruno Rodriguez, the foreign minister. Because U.S. officials did not then have contact with Cuba's diplomats, I seized the opportunity to raise the case of Osvaldo Paya. And again, I'd been in the job uh, less than a week at this point, having gotten through Senate confirmation. Paya was a fearless Cuban democracy activist who had gathered more than 25,000 signatures to press the communist government to allow basic freedoms. After mobilizing the largest peaceful movement in Cuba since Fidel Castro had taken power in 1959, Paya had been killed in a car crash in 2012. According to Paya's family and the Spanish politician who was with him at the time of his death, government-backed thugs had run his car off the road. The Castro government naturally denied wrongdoing, but its history of harassing and imprisoning those who pushed for reform left it with little credibility. At the lunch, I pressed the foreign minister to allow an independent investigation of what had happened. If you have nothing to hide, I said to Rodriguez, what are you afraid of? Why not have an independent investigation? I had just started an official Twitter account. Having returned to the US mission after the lunch, I tweeted, Osvaldo Paya stood up for freedom just raised with the Cuban foreign minister the need for a credible investigation into his death. That was my tweet. Paya's daughter tweeted back her thanks and urged the UN to, quote, help stop the hashtag Cuban government impunity, end quote. The Washington Post and Newswires picked up the story, which appeared in media all around the world. I was exhilarated, new to my job, by the seeming ease with which, from this new position, I could elevate the profile of an egregious injustice. But a few days later, when I met the Mexican ambassador to the UN for the first time, he chastised me for publicizing something I had discussed during a private UN lunch. 
You have to decide whether you're a diplomat or an activist, he said. You can't be both. I am both, I told him, and we should all be both. I'm not going to drink wine at a lunch with the Cuban foreign minister and pretend his government is not responsible for killing one of the country's best. I hear you, the Mexican ambassador said, but people won't speak freely to you if they think you're more interested in making a media splash than engaging in real dialogue. <laughs> I explained my rationale. Cuban government goons ran Paya off the road. They know that, and they will never allow a proper independent investigation. The closest we may ever get to holding them accountable for murdering a Cuban activist are a few negative headlines. I don't see how silence helps anyone. Talk to me in a few months, he said. The Mexican ambassador became a friend, but I never came around to his view. I was not prepared to choose between public and private diplomacy. Both have their place. Thank you. Questions? I think they encapsulated some of what is so good about um, this book. I, I ha was lucky enough to get an advanced copy um, because I was doing this event, and um, I enjoyed it immensely. I have to say that I've read quite a few um, memoirs of policy personalities in the United States, including uh, most recently Bill Burns, but this book is far and away the one that interweaves your personal story and the policy story best. So um, it is a very personal book. Um, and, you know, I would say you reveal a lot of things about your inner feelings, your inner workings as you become a uh, senior official throughout your life. Um, I don't think there's any need for the unauthorized bi biography of, uh, <laughs> of Samantha Power any longer. You have no um, idea what's on the cutting room floor, man. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> right? You're right. Uh, so how did you decide what to include in the book, uh, what not to include, if anything, and uh, what, were you, what were you trying to convey by, by including all these very personal details? Well, just for those who haven't managed to read the book in the five days it's been out. Um, no. Uh, so I do, I, it, it starts in a Dublin pub um, where I'm originally from, originally from Ireland, as I mentioned. And uh, it tells a very personal story about my parents and the difficulties in their marriage. My father was an alcoholic. I spent a very, very large uh, portion of the time I wasn't in school when I was a kid in a pub. And so I think I described uh, that pub vividly. I don't know if it's an advertisement for the pub or its opposite, uh, given that I do describe it vividly. Um, but, uh, and then I describe, you know, coming to America as an immigrant when I was nine to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, 1979, year of We Are Family, for those of you who like baseball. Um, and, uh, and the Steelers also won the Super Bowl that year. And I mention that because I, jeez, uh, <laughs> who knew the Seahawks-Steelers rivalry, I was unaware, had really gripped the nation. Um, 
So, but I mentioned that because sports became a kind of lingua franca and a way of fitting in, and I describe sports and my love of sports. And then, and this is relevant, I guess, particularly for the young people in the audience, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I, when I was in college, I was a sports reporter. I was on a sports radio talk show with a number of other students. Um, and, you know, to the degree that I was opinionated, uh, I was opinionated about about sports of all kinds, baseball, basketball, you name it, I, I had an opinion. And then the summer of my freshman year, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, interning at the CBS sports affiliate there. And as I was taking notes on a Braves-San Francisco Giants game, the footage from Tiananmen Square came down on the feed next to the one that had the baseball game. And I had one of those, I mean, it really was sort of an epiphany in one level in the sense that it was a jolt, but it wasn't an epiphany in the sense that that there was any divine implication to what I was seeing. It was just kind of, oh my God, like, how is this happening? Because it was young people my age who'd risen up and, unlike me, had risked everything and then were being mowed down. Um, And so all it did for me at that time, it did not crystallize an intention to become a human rights lawyer or anything like that. It was far too green and ill-informed to even, I wouldn't have even known what career paths might be that worked in human rights or that worked in foreign policy. Um, But I did go back to college and become a more serious student read more. I took a Chinese history class immediately and, and dug into current events. So this is just a taste of, of the stories that I tell, but plus, as you know, John, the, the, the inner workings. I had a lot of anxiety um, in my early years, maybe stemming from my father's death or, or from other factors, and I go into all of that and describe, um, you know, kind of how it shaped, how I related to the events I was seeing around me. And to back to your question, finally, the question of why... When I started, I think I thought I was going to do, having read all the traditional government memoirs, I'm not that imaginative, so I think I thought I was going to do a pretty traditional government memoir. And then as I wrote about our debates, of course, all the Trump stuff is happening in the background, the Trump stuff being his presidency. (laughs) Um, And, you know, his presidency. And and, uh, so... I'm I'm writing this book and I'm writing about the, the inner workings of government and all the rest. And then, you know, kind of all of my assumptions are being not only challenged. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you can rip apart an assumption. I guess not. But you, but but um, repudiated. I think with the policies that are being made. And so, you know, I start to think, gosh, I, I can't just start in the government as an idealist, you know, the scene I read you is a good example of some of the tensions that one encountered, and that maybe is interesting, but but we're at a moment where first principles are under siege, and I have to go back, I think, and do more to show, and I was a journalist before, so show not tell, to show how those ideals came into existence in the first place, hopefully in a conv- in a convincing way, and to me the only way I know to convince is not to, you know, Hector to make an argument, but to tell a story um, that that shows why human dignity matters so much and why it has so much more of an impact on world events than I think it gets credit for. I mean, if you think about even Trump's election and the and the flip of Obama voters to Trump voters as as you know some sense of dignity 
with globalization being lost or trampled, or if you think of the Arab Spring and all that that has wrought, and the, and the fruit seller who set himself on fire because of the humiliation and the corruption. And, and so I believe that about dignity. I knew I believed it when I started writing the book, but I realized I had to go back and kind of show it and to open it up uh, and in order to re- try to reclaim first principles. And, and, and I realized, I mean, I never really, th- I th- of course I thought of myself as an immigrant to this country, but it wasn't a political statement to be an immigrant. Everyone was an immigrant or the kid of an immigrant or the grandkid of an immigrant. And now suddenly it's a radical political position to think that immigration has made America a better place. Um, so that dimension of my story became more important again as the world changed around me. And then lastly, and thank you for your patience, <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, as I said at the outset, I think a good story that has a character in it, and it's, you know, it happens to be me, uh, rightly or wrongly, but that is a way, I think, to bring more people into the conversation that, you know, people who care about foreign policy might have been having for a long time, or diplomats, or, you know, people, people who read the international section of the New York Times with great eagerness. This book aims to go well beyond that, to, to young people who might be more interested in you know, dealing with homelessness in, in New York City, or dealing with racial injustice, and, and, but for whom the, the larger lesson of how do you apply your ideals in a messy world in, in the face of constraints that you wish weren't there, but that you have to find a way to navigate. So, so it aims to go bigger, to go younger, young, actual age young, but also young at heart. You know, people who are very much engaged in the current, um, in, in, in figuring out ways to deal with the current crisis, and in trying to shape a different tomorrow than, than today. That, so, and in that sense, I felt I had to go beyond foreign policy to a, to a bigger story. Great. Um, you mentioned quite a bit about how you sort of wrote this book for this time, in a way. You shared these um, revelations about yourself and, and your experiences for this time. And I think that uh, brings to mind other things about this time. Um, all of us have been watching or I think most of us in this room probably have been watching the Democratic primary and all the preparations for the 2020 election. You were part of uh, Obama's campaign um, and uh, part of Obama's staff when he was a senator. Um, drawing on that experience, what, what do you believe, um, what, would, what would you make of this current contest, all the anxieties about candidates damaging one another's reputations in advance of the main event, and um, what would you encourage young people to do as they engage in politics? How should they look at what's happening? Great. No, I, I, I do. Um, I tell the story of Obama's campaign. It, it, others have told it. Uh, mine is from the vantage point of um, having met my husband on the campaign, Cass, the aforementioned Pecklin Artan, uh, <laughs> Chris Christner. Um, uh, but it's also from the vantage point of having gotten to know Obama in a very different context and then watching him evolve on the campaign. It's from the vantage point of being a complete uh, neophyte when it comes to campaigns and thus in, I have a chapter called Monster, um, which I probably don't need to elaborate on here, but, uh, but is, is about losing my cool 
um, getting completely caught up, uh, you know, I, I mean, ridiculously caught up, really, in, uh, in the back and forth between Hillary Clinton and, and Barack Obama as, as the election grew more and more tense. I mean, there isn't a lot of memory of that, of how heated it became and how intemperate it became in the way that people talk about the alleged mudslinging in the current um, primary process. I mean, it, it does tend to be like that. It tends to be people trying to distinguish themselves, at times feeling like they're not making strides with their policy positions and feeling like they need to claim the one-liner or the limelight in certain ways. And so, in, in, in some respects, what we're seeing, again, I think is pretty, pretty typical and pretty familiar. But the main thing I think, the lesson that I would draw and apply to the present is one that Barack Obama, who was also new to campaigning for president and of course was just a first term senator, but one he shared with me and others after he was unexpectedly defeated in the New Hampshire primary. Some of you remember that. He had won Iowa and that was sort of blew people's minds, even though he'd been a very effective fundraiser in the year prior to the primary process. I, the caucus, the Iowa caucus, was the first election, as it were, uh, in choosing the nominee. And he had won it handedly over Senator Clinton and John Edwards and a number of others who people forget were part of the campaign, Chris Dodd, Bill Richardson, others. And so he'd won, and then his lead shot up in the polls, and he was... I think seven points ahead, or in some polls, 10 points ahead. And then Senator Clinton had a very um, impactful last kind of 36 hours. Senator Obama had a very bad, I mean, relatively bad debate where he lost support, and she won New Hampshire. And then everybody kind of, not everybody, but a lot of people thought that the old order was reasserting itself. And this is what Obama said, which I think is relevant for those of us who feel anxiety when we see so many candidates at each other. But Obama said at this small gathering, uh, Katie Lilly's here somewhere, uh, I think Katie was there as well. Uh, Obama said, hey, you know, we were all crying. I mean, it was, we, we thought the whole thing was over, that it had just been this meteor that had shot into the sky and expunged itself somehow. And, and uh, he said, you know, I've, I, this is, and this is vintage Obama, I, I, I also, I was pretty much writing my, my convention speech. You know, I was writing my speech for Denver, like basically accepting the nomination in my head. I also got carried away. But you know what? We need this. Because when we face off against the Republican nominee, who already by then looked likely to be John McCain, and this is the phrase he used, I tell the story in the book, but we are gonna be like steel that has been forged and fortified. And if anybody thinks, again, that you can sort of afford to tread lightly and not go through something bruising, I mean, in some ways it really is, it, it's like sparring partners in a way that, you know, people coming at you from every angle. So I think there is that salutary dimension of of these debates that we are looking at, and we're going, it's going to get reduced to a final four pretty soon, and when you have the final four, and it is the case that, that the four, at least, my, you know, the, the four I might imagine, which I don't need to disclose, you probably have your own four, but, uh, but they will, they're really different, um, and yet, at a baseline, in terms of 
an abhorrence of cruelty, uh, you know, a desire to combat racial injustice, a desire to put in place sensible gun control measures, a desire, I think, to, to re-engage internationally, but with an emphasis on diplomacy and on our alliances and instilling values, again, in our foreign policy. I mean, you know, there, there are baseline tenets that it's important to remember that all of these candidates share. And the winner is definitely going to be like steel who has been forged and fortified. And then it's really, to your point about what's the lesson for the rest of us, it's about activation and it's about coming together um, in a way that right now feels very, the, you know, the, 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 when you see Warren support, let's say Warren and Biden are the two front runners, Biden and Warren, whatever the order you, you uh, believe, but the supporters are really down on each other. Um, whoever wins, whether it's them or anybody else, it just has to be about coming together around this common purpose. And I think in, in pretty much all, all but maybe one or two of the candidates, I think uh, there would be that coming together, which will be so important to the, to the ultimate cause. Wonderful, thank you. Um, you. You mentioned uh, when you were describing the kind of epiphany moment, um, you mentioned Tank Man, and you have a wonderful chapter on that and uh, called that in your book. Um, and uh, you also... Just, just to digress, because I actually didn't mention Tank Man being the man you all remember, because it was the 25th or more now, is it? was it the 25th, 11, 30, 30th anniversary of Tiananmen and Tank Man, who I didn't mention explicitly, but was the man who went in front of the tanks who had his grocery bags and that was one of the images, and he just dared the tank to run him over. And that was one of the images that very much moved me. Exactly. Um, and um, right now, you're known, I think, for your uh, insistence that we must include a, foreign, um, a, a human rights agenda, uh, empowerment, and other issues in our foreign policy. Right now, everybody uh, here, especially in Seattle, which is so Pacific-oriented, is watching Hong Kong. Mm. Um, you... China, it sounds like, fascinated you as you were moving uh, through your interesting career, and uh, you did deal with China a lot when you were at the UN and in uh, the National Security C uh, Council staff. What, what do you think we should do about China now? How do you view uh, the way that China is developing, and how central should uh, human rights and human dignity and, and empowerment be in our agenda with China? Um, well, let me say, I think for starters, that um, the mishandling by the Chinese government of the extradition bill is what has caused for the Chinese government a bigger and bigger headache. And I was reflecting on this the other day, just thinking about what it would be like for any of us to, and I mean, some people are experiencing this already, of course, in this country, but to enjoy some, whatever your standard of living is as it, when it relates, as it, as it uh, applies to human rights, and then to see rights taken away in that manner and to see that kind of shrinking of political space. I mean, imagine if suddenly you had to get a permit to come here or let's say you work, uh, I was just reading the article in yesterday's Times about employees of Cathay Pacific. Have you, did you read this? Where employees of Cathay Pacific are getting fired now because of their Facebook posts if they express sympathy for the protesters in Hong Kong or if they participated in the protests. And so, again, you used to be able to be 
living in Hong Kong and, and, and um, expressing your views and then suddenly it's just slowly taken away. And so China has created a, a bigger and bigger headache for itself by not recognizing that two systems was a commitment that the, the people of Hong Kong took extremely seriously. In terms of US policy, I mean, um, I don't pretend that there's any, an easy answer to, or, or response even to China's rise. Um, but what I would say is that on the one hand, as I experienced at the UN, China is a veto holder um, and an incredibly powerful force on the planet, ever more so. I mean, in the 21st century, economically and in terms of the heft that it could exert, potentially en route to becoming the most powerful, ultimately. Um, and we can't deal with an existential threat to our planet, climate change, without China being at the table. Um, much of what comes out of the UN Security Council, which again doesn't get a lot of headlines, but 100,000 peacekeepers going to this place or that place, any hope of sanctioning a wrongdoer or a coup plotter, all of that has to, China is a pass-through, just as Russia is a pass-through, and just as now President Trump is a pass-through. You have to get China, Russia, the United States on board in order for the international architecture, such as it is here in 2019, to, to work. And so there is no path that allows us to achieve our interests that's merely one of confrontation. But I think what you've seen from the Trump administration, and it's been very, like with everything, it's mixed messages. You never know what you're going to get from a Monday to a Tuesday. Um, we're Monday today, right? That means <laughs> appeasement. And then tomorrow it'll be, you know, new tariffs. And, um, and, and even one of the, one of the things that the, Trump administration, or the, the president does often, which is really disturbing and, and problematic, is linking, you know, let's say Huawei and the 5G issue where our intelligence community has come out and declared, you know, the, what the Chinese are doing in terms of permeating the planet a national security threat. Um, you know, that it would create the, the possibility not only for greater spying, but potentially to shut down um, whole electric grids or phone systems in a crisis. And so the conclusion is that that's a national security threat by our fact-based community. Um, but the president has said in negotiations with President Xi, hey, I'll throw in Huawei while I'm at it. You know, like, we'll, we, can, we, can, we can figure that out. We'll, we'll just do that at the end, and that'll be like the, you know, the cherry on the cake. Or, and, and so this linkage, and the same is true with human rights, I think with this administration, is it's just, it's just a cudgel for those like Venezuela who we're mad at and we, who we are rightly you know, standing up in opposition to, um, but there's no consistency of application. And in general, because of this uh, nationalism and privileging of sovereignty, most of the statements out of Trump himself uh, have been basically about respecting China's um, uh, will and, and its desire to do what it wants, quote, within its borders, which is a kind of 19th century conception of what so sovereignty allows, or at least a pre-1945 conception. Because what we've learned is that what a state does within its borders, A, ends up being a predictor often of how it acts externally, uh, but B, it's very rare that those consequences stay confined within borders. And in the case of Hong Kong, of course, 
to even say it's within its borders is a, is a complicated, I think, you know, a misstatement of sorts. So to, to walk and chew gum at the same time is gonna be extremely challenging with China, but my own view is that we, we are heading into a struggle between two models, an authoritarian model and a, what we hope is a revitalized democratic model of which we hope the United States will be a flag bearer. And in that spirit, it is still the case that we have a voice, that we can show solidarity. We're not gonna be able to dictate what China does in Hong Kong. And, and um, to, 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 to think that we can is, is, I think, delusional. But what we can do is increase the cost for China to be using ever more coercive measures and try to be part uh, of their calculus as to how far they go um, in, again, trying to exert uh, the heavy hand. And that's with our voice. It could ultimately be with economic sanctions on particular individuals or actors involved in the crackdown. Um, there are a range of tools, but I think the main thing is right now, you wouldn't know if you were in Hong Kong whether or not I think the Trump administration is greenlighting China to do what it wants or whether it's you know, urging the democracies and the rights respecters of the world to come together uh, to urge China to, to act with restraint. Uh, you, I, I wouldn't know, I'm not sure anybody in the region would know. Yeah, it's amazing that we saw so many demonstrators carrying the American flag under these circumstances um, in Hong Kong. Um, you, uh, in your story about Hillary and her help uh, in preparing for your move and also about Cass and his um, bung, you know, bumbling of the uh, birth certificates, um, that was a kind of a vignette about being a woman in a very, very challenging uh, professional occupation, in this case, security policy and international relations, where um, men have dominated in the most crudest sense of the word for a very long time. Um, perhaps you could share a few of your other experiences, particularly those that are relevant for all of the um, young women, who are some of my finest students are young women, or just the young people, because I think that we all appreciate the difficulties that women are in in these occupations now. Um, about how, how life lessons, I guess, is what I'm talking about. What should they know as they go into this? Do you have any advice for them? Um, how is it? The field is, is it's not a level playing, playing field. Um, how do they play and what should they do? Well, one of the things that's been um, immensely gratifying in my very short book tour so far is to see how many young women are at events like this. And unfortunately, I can't really see the audience, um, A, because it's dark, and B, because I can't see uh, without my glasses. Um, but, uh, but is to see young women and this aspiration I think they have, whether to promote human rights or to be involved domestically on trying to make change. I mean, there is a way in which Trump has done us all one favor, which is, I think, there is a pretty broad feeling, or a broader feeling, let's say, than there might have been before November 2016, of, hey, if he can be president, <laughs> surely I can join the school board, you know, like, and there's, there's sort of less of a, a cap, I think, on people's sense of where they can go, um, <laughs> arguably. Um, but yeah, so I try to, I try to open up um, my experience as a woman in a way, and, and to be honest, th this took some work for me um, 
to go back over it and really reflect on it because as is true, I think for, for I'm sure many working women here, you're just one foot in front of the other, you're barely hanging on if you're juggling this, that, and the other thing and raising kids and trying to keep it all together, that extra you know, set of minutes to reflect and go meta on your experience, just that's a luxury, um, one luxury too many. Um, so there's some examples uh, you know, in the book, I think, of the unconscious ways, I mean, actually the, the example of, of my friend Hilary Chanel and her help for me and her line about, um, you know, just how different it is because you just don't have that support network in quite the same way, uh, I think speaks to that. There's one, one story I actually don't tell in the book, um, but that I think is, a, is an example of the bias, because there's, there's, there's the, the numbers issue, which is just there just aren't a lot of women in national security. And then there's the way in which, notwithstanding that stark and well-known fact, so few people notice who are kind of, you know, let's say in the majority. And so the best example of this um, came, and some of you may remember this, when President Obama was helping negotiate an end to the first debt ceiling crisis. Do you remember that? When Congress was like playing chicken with um, raising the debt ceiling. And the White House put out a pic, and, you know, President Obama, the son of an amazing feminist trailblazer, married to you know, one of the great women leaders and inspirations and professionals of our time, Michelle Obama, two daughters, I mean, as feminist as you could get in the White House. But nonetheless, this, the, particularly in national security, but across the board, a very male-dominated institution. And so he's in the midst of this uh, negotiation, and the White House puts out a photo, as they often do, of him in kind of crisis mode. And it's a chair like this one in the Oval, and you just see the back of his head, and then this phalanx of advisors, and there, I can't remember, the, a dozen, maybe 13 advisors, and they're all guys, um, and somebody thought it was a good idea to put this photo out. I mean, now we're used to it, right, because we see, like, off, you know, when the Saudi delegation is meeting the Trump administration delegation, the Saudi delegation might have more, they might have at least a woman translator, uh, and and so now we like you don't even but but in the Obama administration I mean someone someone progressive who's part of the administration you know put out this photo and but anyway so everybody freaked out when they not everybody but some number of people saw the photo and said oh, how could they have this meeting and and how could this be you know this would have been like 2012 maybe how in 2012 is this what a White House meeting looks like and then somebody else decided it was a good idea to say no 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 no. You're not looking at the photo carefully enough. If you look just behind Dan Pfeiffer's corduroys, you will see a leg. And it is the leg of Valerie Jarrett. <laughs> Valerie Jarrett. And so um, Jody Cantor, who has a great book out now, she said, some of you read about it or read it, uh, Jody Cantor tweeted, Valerie Jarrett's leg as metaphor, right? <laughs> and I felt like I live that, especially at the UN where there's never been a woman secretary general. Um, and, but in each instance, um, in both male-dominated environments, the White House national security environment and the UN, uh, I, I have a chapter called Lean On, right? Not lean in, but lean on. Uh, I learned, and it was more by instinct than 
but it would, now it would be much more intentional if I was going back into those environments, but at the time it was by instinct or it was on someone else's initiative. But at the White House, um, a female colleague of mine invited a group of the women, so-called senior directors, the kind of senior advisors to the president who aren't national security advisors, not the very top, but the next layer down, and invited a handful of us to her office for a glass of wine one Wednesday. And it was the first time I looked around, it was the only all-women meeting I'd ever been, I'd been in since I got to the White House, and suddenly I noticed, oh my gosh, it's different. We're asking questions about each other and inquiring about how it's going and sharing you know, our disappointments, venting a little bit, a bit of a therapy session. And uh, we started, the, the, the woman, Liz Sherwood Randall, started scheduling this meeting, and we called it the Wednesday group, and we met every Wednesday, barring, you know, terrible crises, and we'd just meet and we would have a glass of wine, talk, um, and just be there for one another. And, and the way, and, and we became friends up to a point, but we were really just, we were colleagues who cared about each other. Um, and it changed the way we interacted in the larger meetings in the sense that we, as often happens, once you become a little more intentional, we reinforced each other's message. We, we disagreed on all kinds of policy issues. I mean, again, just being a woman doesn't mean you agree on whether we should recognize the Armenian genocide or what to do about Syria. I mean, these are, these are uh, you know, issues that, that, and, and judgments that grow out of one's whole life experience. Uh, but when I got to the UN, influenced by Madeleine Albright, who had done the same, I, I, Madeline, when she was UN ambassador, had created what she called the G7, because back then there were only seven women ambassadors in the UN out of 183 countries. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was 1993, so I got there in 2013, and there were 37, yay, but out of 193 countries. So still not um, making rapid strides, but nonetheless, I created the G37, and it fluctuated, so it would go up and down. But it was similar to the Wednesday group, you know, just to, to find a place, and, you know, with some of these countries, island nations, or their repressive countries, who decided to send a woman to represent them, um, and that might be the only enlightened thing they do all year. Um, uh, but the solidarity and, and then the, with an aspiration to create um, networks and coalitions across regional lines and across ideological lines, uh, and, and we had some success in that regard. But that, that uh, deepening of the relationships uh, to, to try to offset some of the sense, and, and I was America more than I was a, a female ambassador. I mean, I was representing the host country, the most powerful country in the world. I, I didn't have the experience that these other women were having by any means, but in me being there for them, at least as described by them, it could give, it could sort of buck them up or give them a sense that somebody had their back and that somebody being America made a difference, I think. Well, that's wonderful. You know, your book is full of so many uplifting stories, I would say, about the use of American power. Um, I, I'm afraid we might not really have a chance tonight to talk about them, but I do want to just really commend certain parts of it because there's kind of a conflict underway in our country, I think, about whether or not you can do any good through collective action or through government action even. And your story about Ebola, your story about Central Africa, there are very many stories that demonstrate, yes, you can. I mean, 
I guess I shouldn't say that. Yes, we can, but we can. And um, I think that uh, maybe some of those issues will come out in the audience Q&A, but I really did love the book. I hope that everybody will, will take the opportunity to read it. I think it tells a unique story, of course, because it's your story about your involvement in um, international affairs and, and a wide range of issues. But... Um, it's a story that certainly touched my heart and also reminded me of all sorts of things that I love about this country. So thank you Great. very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you both. So <clears throat> we're going to open up for Q&A now for the next 10 to 15 minutes. So we have microphones on the other side. We do have a questionnaire. So Kay, if you can step up to the mic over there. We'll get you going first. We ask that you um, ask your question in a form of a question. So we're trying to avoid statements so that we can get as many people in um, the Q&A here. So step on up and please direct your questions into the microphone so everyone can hear you clearly. And now I can see. I apologize, I'm on the wrong side. Um, I had a couple of questions, uh, namely, given the fact that um, over the last couple of years, so much of the work that you did um, has been either sort of challenged or to an extent dismantled in some cases, um, how would you say, moving forward, what's the way that um, American diplomats can sort of regain some of that lost ground and um, rebuild uh, some kind of national identity or um, reputation uh, in, within the international community and um, in the eyes of our allies. Did you say you had two questions? I had two questions, but I was gonna start with that one. <laughs> and then, okay. Um, it's a great question, and um, let me say, uh, a couple things. I mean, first, um, the bad news is that you have the, and you were polite in saying so many things have been challenged or dismantled. I mean, a lot has been dismantled. Um, and my husband was in, Cass was in charge of regulation also for the, he was um, in charge of regulation for the first term. So that included health and safety regulation, environmental regulation, labor regulation, and so much of that has been dismantled, um, you know, which I'm equally alert to. I mean, our foundation for our leadership on human rights internationally comes from, above all, how we're, we're treating our own citizens and whether we're looking out for them. So I think the bad news is, is twofold. Um, first, just the intrinsic badness of, for example, ending the Iran deal, which we spent years negotiating, and which by all accounts, by all independent accounts, was um, preventing Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. So that's just intrinsically bad. You blow up the deal, you have, not you, uh, <laughs> he blows up the deal, he and his team, they have no stated ambition about what they want to replace it with. They believe in punishment for punishment's sake, which may be satisfying somewhere, you know, in the Trumpian bosom. Uh, but it isn't doing anybody any good. And it certainly isn't uh, achieving the objective that the deal was achieving, which was, again, 
uh, cutting off Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon. And moreover, we had united the whole world against Iran and its nuclear ambitions. What Trump has done has united the world and Iran basically against us and I suppose Israel and Saudi Arabia as well. But um, but that's a very different, the, the skewing of the coalition now is very different. So that, that's just an example of the intrinsic harm. And then the intrinsic harm on something like the Paris Treaty, where Mer I tell the story in the book of us, of, of Obama, even though we thought, and I think Obama uh, would admit as well that he, he thought that Secretary Clinton was uh, the strong favorite to win, he did have the, the foresight um, to say to us after Secretary Kerry put the finishing touches on the Paris Agreement in Paris in 2015, he said, Obama said, John, Samantha, Susan, the whole national security team, you guys go out. I want you to, you know, play as if this is your last dash, that this is our last stint in power, and I want you to get the Paris Agreement locked into international law before the November 2016 election. Now, that sounds like just uh, formality, not a formality at all. First, Kyoto took like nine years to bring into force because all the parliaments, the requisite number of parliaments have to ratify an international treaty before it uh, acquires the force of law. And by doing it so much more quickly than in any international environmental treaty had been done before, it, Trump, uh, excuse me, Obama understood that if Trump won and he pulled out, uh, it would not dismantle the entire Paris Agreement. It would mean that the United States was falling behind his commitments and that the world was falling behind on combating climate change, but at least the other signatories would be um, uh, committed and the, and the treaty would remain in effect. So, but the, but the harm of the US, you know, not even fulfilling the baseline, Paris was just the baseline before we were gonna then, you know, re-energize another process to get another accord put in place so we stretch ourselves further and now the United States is lagging so far. So that's intrinsically harmful. And then the, the collateral bad news on issues like this, and there are dozens of them uh, in terms of what Trump has undone, is that it means that our successor, Trump, Trump's successor, uh, whoever it is and whenever it is, uh, from my standpoint, I hope, of course, in January 2021 or before, um, uh, but, but whoever his successor is is gonna have a hell of a time convincing other countries to be part of treaties and agreements with the United States. So there's the intrinsic harm, and then there's this knock-on harm, which is the damage, as you know, to, to our credibility, which isn't just a you know, kind of popularity contest. It has practical consequences when we think about doing further international agreements. That's the bad part. But the good part is, I mean, two things. One, countries are desperate for US leadership to return. There is no team captain in the international system here, notwithstanding China's rise. We're a long way from, in the face of an Ebola epidemic in Congo, China, you know, gathering the countries of the world together to combat that. And even on, for example, an issue of cl climate change, we're a long way, notwithstanding uh, China's progress on solar or whatever else, you know, China's still building coal plants as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, even as it's taking credit under Paris for uh, dialing back, uh, you know, coal, coal use at home. Um, and so there's a hunger for U.S. leadership, one. And then the second positive thing I would say is, I don't think you can, you can, uh, I, I don't think you can discount 
what it meant for President Obama to take on so many taboos also in American foreign policy. I mean, even though Trump, for example, has undone the Cuba normalization, does anybody here think, I mean, you know, again, barring like some perpetual, um, you know, whatever, perpetuation of, of Trumpism at a, at a federal level, uh, which I have a hard time seeing as, as something more than an epiphenomenon, even though I take the phenomenon very, very seriously, but nonetheless, does anybody see in 10 years us not having normalized relations with Cuba? And five years ago, what are we now, 2019? Six years ago, could you have ever seen the politics of that? I mean, people acted like if, if, if Obama even touched, even raised the Cuba issue, and this is a very small issue, uh, but that like Florida would fall off the map, you know, that like no Democrat would ever win again in the, you know. And so that's an example where, the, where sort of the baseline has shifted. Even the engagement of Iran to do the deal in the first place was taking on a huge taboo. I mean, we hadn't spoken to them basically since 1979. And Trump, for, you know, again, there's very little I can say about his foreign policy that is positive, but I will say I would support his engagement, uh, or, or at least the Trump administration's engagement with Iran, of course. The fact that he's even talking about that I think stems from the fact that, that again, those taboos have lifted, and he's, I'm perfectly supportive of the of the North Korean engagement. I'm just would be wildly critical of the the, the manner in which it's being done. But but we've, I mean, in that sense, we've made strides as a country. That remember the Kennedy line of never negotiate in fear, never fear to negotiate. So I think I think the boundaries have been pushed, and I'm hoping that when a future Democratic president or a future sane Republican president uh, seeks to negotiate with other countries, that there is um, that the that that people. I mean, we have so much amnesia in our politics right now, but that. Republicans remember that they supported Trump when he engaged North Korea and talked about engaging Iran, when they, you know, ridiculed Obama for doing the same thing. I hope that again in the future now we have two very different politics behind policies of engagement on behalf of U.S. interests, and and I think that's an important uh, threshold that's been crossed from which I'm hoping we we won't go back. Thank you. What policies do you think the United States should be following toward the tragedy in Venezuela? It's a great question. Um, and, and again, not something that even despite eight years in the Obama administration, it, we were not able to stem the bleeding within that country. The destruction has gotten much worse over the last couple of years. But I would say this about the Trump administration. I think they've it's one of the few crises where they've really worked to build a kind of multilateral coalition around their position, mobilizing support for recognition of the National Assembly president, for example. Um, for the U.S., I think it's it, I think our policy, though, especially in the Americas, is is filtered through the, our history in the Americas, which makes the invocation, however uh, hypothetical. Uh, of the use of military force in Venezuela, a very flawed approach. So I would stop <laughs> that. There's no way to go back in time. We cannot undo the John Bolton year as National Security Advisor. Um, but he really, I mean, it was part of his of his approach and, and reflected by the president, or vice versa. It was Trump's approach reflected by John Bolton, but that invoking the specter of the U.S. military was a kind of footstep effect that would scare 
Maduro into potentially giving up power. I, I mean, to me, just on its face, that was very foolhardy and undid some of the good that was done in building the coalition. So I think massive emphasis on the humanitarian, given the, the devastating toll, um, the um, state failure, man-made failure is having on the people of Venezuela. Um, so sadly, because of our loathsome position domestically, our American position on refugees, we are not in a strong position to do what we need to be doing on Venezuela, which is to be encouraging uh, the neighboring countries to continue to welcome refugees. Colombia has, I mean, it's incredible how many refugees are coming across the border daily. It's now going to surpass Syria, I think at some point soon, to have produced the most uh, refugees or almost a comparable number of refugees. And that's not from a, conf a, a, a traditional conflict situation, but just from um, the horrific management of the state by the Maduro regime and the violence against political opposition. So I think, you know, again, maintain the support of the National Assembly, emphasize the humanitarian, be much more careful about sanctions and whether they are targeted or whether they themselves are taking a toll on the access to medicines. But, but fundamentally, the, the pressure is going to have to come from the region. And the more support the United States has, the United States will have more support for its position and there'll be more energy behind the diplomacy Again, if we're not invoking military support and if our position on human rights is more consistent and doesn't seem as if it's a one-off for Venezuela, which is how it sometimes seems because of Trump's position towards Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Philippines, et cetera. And so putting a, 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 you know, what is a strong human rights position or a vocal human rights position in a more consistent context would make, I think, this administration more persuasive in its diplomacy. Hello. I have two questions, if you don't mind. First, I'm about to start my first job in international security at the Pentagon, so I was wondering if you could turn Mr. Kogel's question into some practical advice for me. And then second, I was wondering a little bit if you could talk a little bit about your relationship between the fourth estate and working in government and what that transition was like for you. Great. Um, so first of all, thank you in advance for your service. Um, I, of all the things I did in my career, I don't think I found anything as meaningful as serving in the government, on, on, on a, as, as John noted, on a good day, uh, to be part, even a small part, of um, U.S. leadership, for example, to end the Ebola epidemic, uh, a story I tell, just bucking some very difficult domestic politics. I think working at the Pentagon, there's plenty that the Pentagon is doing off the headlines um, you know, I don't know what, what part of the Pentagon you're working in, but whether that's care for military families um, and, or, you know, even, you know, some of the military and the non-military dimensions of trying to combat ISIS, which still goes on, is an incredibly worthy fight. Um, you know, just making sure our troops in Afghanistan for as long as they're there, and, you know, I do hope they'll be coming home soon, finally, after 18 years, uh, but that they have the supplies and the support that they need from the building. But that's an abstraction, because I don't know what you're doing specifically. I think what I'd say more generally about public service, uh, among the lessons I learned uh, was that, and this is true, I think, of citizenship, which I'm now learning, um, being reminded of uh, this challenge, but I think we all feel that the problems in the world are you know, if you're me and you're critical of the Trump administration, 
even the, 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 the own goals or the, or the self-inflicted wounds um, by this president, um, the problems feel much bigger than any one individual can solve. And um, even when I was a member of the president's cabinet, so not coming in for the first time to the government, but actually getting to operate at this amazing level and having the ear of the president, I'd look at the 67 million people displaced in the world and just think, oh, what can one person do, you know, which is how I'm sure you feel now and all of us do and how you'll feel also as a cog in the larger, you know, Pentagon machinery. And one of the concepts I introduce in the book is not mine, but it comes from a wonderful book called Switch uh, by the Heath brothers. The subtitle is Making Change When Change is Hard. But they have a great concept, a very uh, sort of familiar concept, but it's shrink the change. So how can you figure out and not at the beginning, you've got to get the lay of the land, but what is your slice of the problem about which you can do something? And my, one of the examples I use in the book was we were, even before Trump, facing a huge human rights recession around the world, and I would feel small. I would just think, damn, I'm in the cabinet of the President of the United States, and yet all the data is showing freedom declining in this country and that country, and... And this was back when I thought Secretary Clinton was going to be w uh, winning the election. So, and even then it seemed like a bleak global picture. And I sat down with my team and together we came up with the idea of a, a very modest campaign to free 20, seek to free 20 female political prisoners from jail from countries like China, Egypt, Ethiopia, Uzbekistan, Cambodia. And I didn't actually, I write about it in the book, I... I don't think I really <clears throat> believed, this is how much you can feel small. I mean, I don't think I believed that we would necessarily make tangible inroads on behalf of, this women, of these women, but I thought it would mean something to these women and it would mean something to the families of these women that the United States was standing with them against these unjust charges. Um, anyway, I, I won't spoil the whole story in the book, but uh, 16 of the 20 women were freed from jail. Um, as a result of not only this campaign, but of course teaming up with the families and the lawyers and so forth. And again, we, I'm very incredibly proud of this uh, modest effort. It's only 16 people against a backdrop of a human rights recession around the world. Yes, each of those 16 women go back to raising their voices and trying to help impact their own communities. Um, but it's so tempting to say it's just, it's just too small next to the, but it's, it's, it's the small, and the small and the small, I think, that will add up. And, and I quote Obama in the book, at one point we have a back and forth, and some of you have heard him say something similar publicly, but Obama likes to say, better is good. <laughs> better is good. And you know what he says sometimes? Better is sometimes a hell of a lot harder than worse. <laughs> and, uh, but so, you know, I think just that shrink the change. What is, what, where, you know, can you identify something that if you stretch yourself that you might be able to achieve rather than feeling like you have to solve all problems at once. And what was your second question? You can talk about your relationship between the fourth estate and government work. Yeah, I mean, for me, being a journalist in advance of being in government was immensely useful. Uh, when I got to the UN, I used stories um, rather than talking points, or in, sometimes in addition to talking points, uh, depending on how what kind of leash I was on on a given negotiation. but. But basically, there's too much rote, you know this from, from having worked at NATO, just talking points, and they could have been dusted off from, 
from when Madeleine Albright was ambassador, you know, uh, tw 20 years before, before I was. Whereas a story, you know, and not a, not a hokey story and not a saccharine story, but just an actual retelling of someone else's experience or your own experience witnessing something has the chance, I think, of breaking through. It doesn't, doesn't always. So one of the things I tried to do is get out of the way and bring, for example, a survivor of Syrian chemical weapons, uh, of the big chemical weapons attack in August 2013 into the Security Council and, and to ensure that his story is told or to bring the doctors who treated chemical weapons survivors to meet with Security Council ambassadors in an informal session for the first time or a Boko Haram survivor or a parent who'd lost a child to Boko Haram. I mean, to bring home the stakes. And that's what journalists are often trying to do, is to find the human angle that can help tell a more universal story. Um, um, so I, I, I f didn't find the transition hard. But, but bear in mind, I had a bridging device, which was when I wrote A Problem From Hell, I interviewed hundreds of US officials to try to tell the story of what US officials were up against. So maybe I had, in that sense, I had more experience, not in, certainly not making policy, but trying to put myself in the shoes of those who had, and so might have been a little more prepared, certainly than I would have been if I'd just gone from being a war correspondent into the Situation Room. Two more questions. First off, thank you very much, Ambassador Power, for coming here to Town Hall and talking with us giving us the benefit of your knowledge. Um, I wanted to ask you today about, I saw Edward Snowden on CBS Morning today. I'm not sure you caught that. Didn't catch it. Mm, well, you will probably in the near future. I was curious, wanted to hear your thoughts on Edward Snowden and uh, his particular predicament right now. Always the softballs in Seattle. Uh, <laughs> Softballs in Seattle, the new movie. Um, you know, I'm, I have a, a different perspective, I think, on Edward Snowden than many of my progressive counterparts because I was in the government when all of this information was put out. Um, and I, because I was the president's human rights advisor, had the job of working with um, State Department officials who worked for, I mean, through the night for days and days on end. I don't know, John, if you were still in the State Department then, but, um, and at our diplomatic posts all around the world, uh, trying to go through what he was putting out to try to figure out who was likely to be harmed uh, by virtue of the disclosures. And, um, so whether that was a dissident um, who thought they were having a private meeting with a U.S. official, like John or myself, in, in a different life, or uh, whether it was a U.S. official reporting on something they knew dissidents or opposition activists to be doing, uh, all of that went out, just with, from what I can tell, no regard for consequences. And... So, I, you know, I don't, it was incredibly harmful. Um, it also just had a, as a practical matter, it was, it, it, I mean, this is diplomatic reporting. I'm not, you know, there's the intelligence component, which I'll come to in just a second, but um, it was just, um, you know, and I don't think, I think those are the 
kinds of voices um, that, uh, you know, th th that was a trust in America, in our diplomatic good offices, um, in these relationships, it was a trust that, that um, was, was uh, very, very difficult and still very, will remain very difficult to rebuild, um, which just means we know less and we hear less. I mean, <laughs> trust me, the US government doesn't need any help finding official sources, right? The, the natural, I write about this in the book, the natural tendency of US officials, unfortunately, is to go find other officials and there's a kind of statism to our, as a default, but, but what, what the disclosures did was it just put out in the public domain, um, you know, again, this, this broader net that I think the best U.S. diplomats have, have sought to cast so that we can be learning from people well outside, uh, you know, the, the, the government. And so that's, was a real, um, downside, I think, to what, to, and, and a very harmful dimension to what Snowden did. Uh, the good thing is that I was also part of the internal process where we went back over, and President Obama has said this publicly, went back over the way in which technology had just expanded and expanded and expanded without um, the kind of systematic and deep review that was needed about whether our national security objectives and our human rights and privacy objectives whether that balance was properly achieved. And so it, you know, the, the, the effect of the disclosures as well was that we, um, I think, got achieved a better balance through an exhaustive review process that the disclosures catalyzed. So, um, but again, I think the, 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 that I wish, I know, I know he claims otherwise, but I wish that he had done more uh, within the system, using the channels that existed to go to higher levels, at least to see whether or not in the Obama administration he could have kick-started or secured that kind of exhaustive review uh, without having to put so much else at risk. Uh, good evening, Ambassador. Um, I have a number of memories of you standing up in the UN Security Council and condemning Russia their campaign of just uh, um, deceit, especially when it related to the Crimean Peninsula. How does it strike you today or rub you that we have a cheap government spokesman that just engages in daily, habitual, shameless, non-tactical lying for no apparent purpose? And as a follow-up, did President Obama ever ask you to do something like that, ever de deny something that you thought was true? To, to deny something. So was your question, I just want to make sure I caught it. I, I heard the part about Russia. Your question is, in the U.S., is that, is that what you're referring to for your first right. question, to have a spokesperson? Okay. And then the second question, did President Obama ever ask me to do something comparable? Um, luckily, my answer to your second question is no. Um, although I do tell the story in the book of um, something, again, very, very different. I'll come back to your first question. Um, which is, um, you know, we had made a, a campaign promise to recognize the Armenian genocide and President Obama, excuse me, Senator Obama's position on why we should recognize is, was that it in effect forced 
diplomats, whether they're, they're serving in Turkey or they're serving anywhere else around the world or in Armenia, um, to not tell the truth. Because we know it to be true that a genocide was carried out in 1915 by the Ottomans against the Armenians. And so I tell the story in the book of how when we got into office, um, how, you know, when push came to shove and when it came time to fulfill that promise, and, and believe me, when we got into office, we had a list of Obama's promises and we were trying to tick through them and it wasn't like anybody was blithe as if these were just, oh, that's the campaign, you know, things happen, now we're in office, we get to do what we want. I mean, really there were people at the White House whose job it was to hold us accountable to the promises that had made in the campaign, including this one. Um, but because we were drawing our troops down from Iraq and so much of the resupply to our troops who were still in Iraq occurred through Turkey and because of, frankly, I think also really the domestic economic circumstances in the U.S. which were devastating and uh, consumed much of the president's time, he chose in that first year not to recognize the Armenian genocide. And I, I tell the story of arguing with him about that um, and in the wake of that, or maybe because of that, as it happens, my water breaking and my son, I know it's crazy, but my son, but the chapter is called April 24th. You heard from my Pecklin story that Pecklin was born on April 24th. Uh, but April 24th is Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, for those of you who don't know. And so every year we light a candle uh, to the Armenians. But I, I mean, I, f I feel terrible because this was a promise that I was also a part of of making, using the credibility that I had amassed, having written a book about that included the Armenian Genocide. And we tried again in the 100th anniversary to, to come around to doing that, but then we were fighting ISIS and we were using Turkish bases. So um, I still think it would have been much better and it would have left diplomats in a position to always, you know, to not have to dissemble and to just be telling the truth and sticking to the facts of what happened in 1915. To your first question, I think, I mean, you put it in, in your language. I guess what I would say is the following, that um, when I got to the UN as ambassador in 2013, w relations with Russia were just beginning to deteriorate. And I had, as part of my post-Tiananmen youth, I had gotten very interested in foreign policy. I'd read everything I could about the Cold War when I was a college student into my 20s when the Balkans were imploding and I became a war correspondent. I became, again, I mean, just as an as a amateur reader of history, but I was really interested in, in Soviet history and in Cold War history. And I remember, again, in my youth, <laughs> but reading about what, for example, the Soviet ambassador would say at the UN during the Cold War, and I would just think to myself, how could he have possibly thought that anybody would, would believe this. I mean, so, you know, the Soviet Union would be invading Czechoslovakia and it would be all about, you know, the humanitarian emergency in Czechoslovakia where the Soviet, you know, benevolent troops are coming in in order to prevent a massacre or the same in Hungary in 1956. And I would just read these things and I think, geez, you know, um, I mean, nobody could ever get away with that kind of thing today. And then lo and behold, in 2014, I walk into the Security Council, Russia's just gone into Ukraine, um, lopped off, sought to lop off Crimea, would soon go into eastern Ukraine, seek to lop off part of eastern Ukraine, and the tactics were identical to those 
that I had in my mind, I just thought, how could anybody back in the day have gone along with, now you have people with phones and cameras and the internet and live witnesses and video testimony and, and yet, and it was like a playbook. But what I never thought, even as I saw that playbook employed on Ukraine, you know, on Aleppo, oh no, we're not, we're not involved militarily in Aleppo. Oh, we just took Aleppo. <laughs> you know, oh no, we're not in Ukraine. Oh, now we're annexing yeah, Crimea. I mean, I mean, just crazy lies, like bald-faced, whatever. I mean, just no regard for shame, as you say. But I never thought that that set of practice. Nor I neither thought it could happen in the modern age. In the age of, you know, back then I was still would have called it, you know, an age where facts would matter and so forth. But the idea that that set of habits which both include deceit and dissembling, um, but also the same diversionary tactics. Whataboutism, a phrase I didn't know until after I left uh, the Obama administration, but when you get accused of doing something or you're at fault for something, immediately you know, attacking your enemy, but also just completely diverting and with a non sequitur to something else. So no, that migration, uh, is extremely disturbing, but what we have here is the privilege of citizenship and the, and the ability to do what we did in the midterms, which was to have you know just unprecedented turnout and an unprecedented wave of new candidates and an ability to organize and to express ourselves. And even with all the big money in politics and the gerrymandering and the crazy Supreme Court decision uh, on gerrymandering, we still can win and we can defeat that, and, and that is a set of privileges they certainly didn't have in the Soviet Union, they also don't have today in Russia, and we just have to use it. Thank you. Yep, it's Ralph Rain. For your, for your brain. It's Ralph Rain. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay, okay. Ralph Rain. Probably wanted the hurling shame at their fake eyes like eight eyes. It's fake me as I scream. Lord, it's wake me from this dream with a light tear barely gleam. In the night you hear the screams in the government fighting dreams. No one for peace, no one for me. Craziest ladies who watched their babies of iodine. Should I am fine like the print on a prenup? Though I felt my life consists of reading the papers with feet up, man. But I ain't tripping. Neighbors, three pups. Hey, watch the flowers. But on the ancient, you should read up. And your anguish will just freeze up. It's on the papers, but it's pre stuffed in your brain. Forget the name, forget the fame. Faking as money's exchange. I think it's amazing how money can change. What you feel in your heart if you let it and regret it. You're in debt with yourself. Shit, man. Not even I can measure myself. Music is everything. We stuck in the measure of self. But. It's dreaming. It's dreaming. It's not free. 
backed by government Like shirts to a belt, shit, I be hovering So the earth can just melt I'm drunk off love, it spills on my shirt as I belch Stacked in bottles on a never-ending shelf Stacks and models, I won't lie, I got no money But my gold is in mine And you can't ever take it from me Unless I give it, but you niggas never listen Just stay a puzzle, and I know that piece is missing And stay a huddle, and it's at least forfeit interest So I never forfeit interest, as in giving up These magazines they listen up About these fake-ass rappers who just live it up And never helping their people All there is to me, help is of evil I never could relate silver spoons And ivory plates, the silver zooms Just as reality shakes How will you eat what's given on reality's place? I see bliss, no matter how reality takes These feet miss Thinking that they carry they weight I change fate on how my mind gets carried away Time is carried by fate In the ocean regrets are carried by weights What's behind me as I'm floating at the perfect pace Didn't move but now I know I'm in a perfect state Even if by tomorrow in the dirt I lay Selfless I know the shirts will say Help the hopeless and know this I never search for praise Search for days where we all will see That the earth will change Seen a homeless man And he said he only searched for change I said we ain't so different And it really hurt to say And I ain't tripping